Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Inheritance causes so much conflict. Uh, maybe you've had this experience in your own family. I know I've had it in mine where uh, as a young person growing up, I never understood why certain branches of the family were alienated from other branches, why some cousins we talked to and others we didn't. And then you find out over time that it has to do with, with the time that, that, that grandpa died and his possessions were not distributed the way that they ought to have been distributed and people hold grudges against that because the inheritance wasn't divided properly. It seems uh, petty to us, but if you look at human history, you find that that it hasn't uh, been petty to many people uh, that fights over inheritance, particularly succession, like who inherits the right to rule. This is the reason why so many wars have been fought, so many people have died. If you're interested in medieval history, uh, and you do some digging, you find out that so many of the conflicts that took place during that period took place because of contested rights over inheritance, over succession. If the king dies, and it's not clear who his successor is, then everybody fights for the right to wear the crown. And because of that, because of all the violence and the conflict that that ambiguity causes, you can understand why a legend like the legend of the sword and the stone, was popular. You remember the legend of King Arthur. The idea was that there was a, a sword, Excalibur, that was embedded in a stone, and the true king was the only one who could pull the sword from the stone. Many people tried and failed to do it. It was only the boy Arthur who was able to withdraw the sword from the stone. Now, obviously, that didn't happen. That isn't a true story. But you can understand why it would have a certain appeal. In times of conflict, when when succession is contested, wouldn't it be nice if there were swords and stones? And we could figure out who has the right, who is the rightful heir just by lining everybody up, who has a claim, and seeing who's able to actually pull the sword from the stone. It would make things so easy, so unambiguous. You would know immediately which king to follow, Because the right king would be the only one who was accompanied by the signs that showed that he was the true king. He was the promised one. It's interesting to think about that idea. Signs that would give you certainty about who should reign. About who the heir ought to be. Because Jesus poses some questions about how you would identify the heir. The heir that he has in mind is the heir to the kingdom that all Israel longs to see the restoration of. The the kingdom that his disciples want to see restored, it is the kingdom of David. The Davidic kingdom that people in Israel, after the, the kingdom broke apart and was overwhelmed and conquered, people were still nostalgic for those glory days when God would restore that united kingdom under a king, the true king, the heir of David. And all they needed to know was who that was. All they needed to know was where to look. Jesus in Matthew 22 poses a a trick question, though, having to do with this succession and how to identify this successor. They had a a word that they used to describe the one who would come, the one who would be the promised heir. It's Messiah. 
the Messiah, the anointed one, is the one who would sit on the throne of David. He would be the true heir to David. But in Matthew 22, starting in verse 41, Jesus poses this hard question. We read these words of Matthew. And while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question and saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, Christ is just the, the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. So Christ is actually not the name of Jesus. It is a title. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus the Messiah, just so you get the sense. He's saying, what do you think about the Messiah? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David, obviously. Then said he's, Jesus said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, and here he quotes Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? If David is the father and the son of David will sit on the throne, how is it that in Psalm 110, David, the father, calls the son Lord? That's the question he poses to them. And in Matthew 22, verse 46, we find this, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. They couldn't answer it. They couldn't figure it out, how to reconcile what they knew about the son of David with the words that David himself had written, how to make those pieces fit. How can David's son also be David's Lord? In Peter's Pentecost sermon, he answers the question. As we've seen, he quotes two psalms in this concluding section of his sermon. Two psalms, words of David, including Psalm 110, the same one that Jesus stumped the Pharisees with, only in Peter's sermon, he declares the answer. He declares the answer. It's interesting and, and fitting that at the conclusion of this Pentecost sermon, this is the first sermon preached after the Holy Spirit has been poured out, that where he ends in this sermon is with the words of King David. Because as we've seen in looking through Acts chapter 1 and now chapter 2, these early events happening in the life of the church have to be understood as events in the kingdom. That the church, the visible church, is the kingdom of God. And what's being proclaimed by these early Christians is the kingdom. It is no accident that he concludes this proclamation of the gospel by going to the dead King David to hear a proclamation of the living king. In fact, you might even say this is the purpose of the sermon. Obviously, this Pentecost sermon, like every sermon, every good sermon anyway, has a single purpose, which is to proclaim Christ. If you preach a sermon and you get to the end and you somehow manage to leave Jesus out, that's not a very good sermon. So the purpose is to proclaim Christ, but specifically, if you're paying attention to this sermon, it is to proclaim Christ as king, as king. This marks such a shift from the uncertainty of Acts chapter 1. Remember, we saw in Acts chapter 1 that, that Jesus, right before the ascension, is asked the questions by the disciples, is it now time to restore the kingdom? 
as if everything that had happened before was, was irrelevant or tangential to the main purpose, which was the restoration of the kingdom. Now Peter sees no uncertainty. Peter now understands that in proclaiming the gospel, he proclaims the kingdom because he is naming the king. He's naming the successor to David's throne. It's important, I think, because it's easy for us to forget that to proclaim the gospel, you have to proclaim the kingdom. You have to proclaim the kingdom. Because the good news is that a new authority sits on the once vacant throne of David. The good news is that a new king has come to rule and to reign. In our text, in verse 33, Peter makes this declaration. He says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The the phenomena, the the miracle that you've witnessed at Pentecost, the thing that made the people turn to Peter and say, what does this signify? What does this mean? All of that happened as a result of Christ's exaltation. It's because he's king that he's given this gift of the Spirit and it's poured out in this way and you have witnessed these signs. It is because there is a new king on the throne. Jesus is king and you have beheld his power. That's what Peter is saying. But he also gives them two swords in the stone. He gives them two signs which allow them to identify who the Messiah is that allow them to see who the chosen one, the promised one, truly is. Those two signs are the resurrection and the ascension. These are the two events. They're 40 days old at the time that this sermon is being preached at Pentecost. These are recent things that have taken place. Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he has ascended to heaven. And Peter is saying these are signs that you can know, you can now verify that Jesus is truly the one who was promised. He starts with Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is the first, the longer quotation that we have in our passage. And and Peter claims, he says that King David in Psalm 16 was speaking prophetically about the resurrection of the Messiah. So he quotes the Psalm. David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So that's Psalm 16. David wrote those words. He wrote them in first person. That's the use of the I there. So when you're reading that psalm originally, you're singing it as it would have been sung. The assumption is that the I is the author speaking, that these are the words of David speaking on behalf of himself. But Peter says that can't be right. That can't be right, brothers, because I happen to know that David is dead. Right? King David is dead, he says. I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So he can't be speaking of himself because David has seen corruption. King David died. He's in the grave. We know where that grave is. You can go and visit that grave if you have any doubts. 
he's still there. So he's not speaking of himself. So who's he speaking of? Peter says he's speaking prophetically. He's a prophet. And he knows that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. And so, in these words, he foresees and speaks about the resurrection of the Christ, of the Messiah. David is dead and buried. His tomb is with us to this day. But he looks forward to the fulfillment of the promise that was made to him. And he speaks on behalf of that future king. So, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, a promise is made to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David begins very confidently by letting God know that he's going to build him a temple. God has been so good to David that David is going to do him a solid and build him a house to dwell in. God is not impressed. God's like, really? You think you're going to build me a house for me to dwell in? No, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build the house. Only I can build the house that I will dwell in. And he promises that one of your descendants will have a kingdom that I will establish forever. He shall build a house for my name, God says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Like Isaiah's prophecies, though, this prophecy is is cryptic. It's not easy to identify who he's talking about. If you go back to 2 Samuel 7, you could try to make that fit Solomon. And there are parts of it that, that you would suggest he's talking about Solomon. We only know he doesn't mean Solomon because of what happens to Solomon's kingdom. Peter says, no, it's not Solomon. It's Jesus that he's speaking of. He's speaking of the Messiah to come, and he's saying that Messiah will not see corruption. His soul will not be abandoned to Hades. In other words, he will die, but he will be raised. Those things are true of the Messiah, and those things are true about Jesus, the one whom the grave could not hold. So if David prophesies and says that the Messiah, the chosen one, will not see corruption, and then you notice that Jesus fits that criteria, it's as if Jesus has drawn the sword from the stone. Jesus was resurrected. Like Jesus fulfills that prophecy. He is the one who was promised. And Peter makes that clear in verse 32 when he says, God raised Jesus up and the witnesses stand before you now. We are the witnesses. You're looking for the Messiah? David, whose son the Messiah is, says you will know him because he will not see corruption, because he will not be abandoned to Hades, to death. And we are here as witnesses to say that Jesus fits that criteria. He was raised from the dead, and we saw him with our eyes. We touched him. We are eyewitnesses of that fact. So if you're looking for the one who fulfills the sign, Jesus is the one. He is the promised king. That's the point of what he's saying to them. He's declaring to them that the one that they've been searching for is the one who has been standing in front of them all this time. The resurrection, that's the first sign. But there's another one, the ascension. As Peter continues, he makes an argument from Psalm 110 about the ascension. 
Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. In Psalm 110, David writes of the Lord speaking to his Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Come to me. Come to me. Ascend to the heavens where the Lord dwells and be seated next to me in this this seat of power and authority. Sit beside me. But then Peter points out, that didn't happen to David. David's not talking about himself. He makes it clear in the wording, as Jesus pointed out, David is clearly speaking of another because he refers to him as my Lord. Your king, David, refers to another as his Lord and says the Lord is speaking to my Lord and telling him this. David did not ascend to the heavens. He's in the grave that Peter says we can visit to this day. So he cannot be speaking of himself, but he is speaking of one who has ascended, one who is at the right hand of the Father, one who has been exalted as a result, who wields authority as a result of that. There is only one person that could refer to. As the author of Hebrews says, not even the angels are spoken to this way. There's not even an angel that God has spoken to and said, here, sit at my right hand, only Jesus Only Jesus has ascended in this way. The Messiah, the chosen one, will be recognized because he will be raised up and because he will ascend to sit at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus has done both of those things. We're witnesses to his ascension as well as to his resurrection. It is the ascension that we saw in Acts chapter 1. They're witnesses to both of these events. And there they are at Pentecost, standing before the crowd. Or when the people ask, what does this mean? When the Spirit is poured out and it results in these miraculous signs, and people want those signs interpreted to them, the ones doing the interpreting are the eyewitnesses to the events. I saw him after the resurrection, Peter can say. We we lived together afterwards. I saw him raised from the dead. And I saw him ascend into heaven. I've never been the same since. Witnesses. But he goes further than that. right? He, he, he makes his audience witnesses as well. Because he says, you can know that Jesus has ascended because to ascend and be seated at the right hand of the Father is to receive authority and power. And you have now seen the power of the Spirit poured out. And it has resulted in these signs. What that means is you're a witness too. What you have seen makes you a witness. We saw the resurrection and the ascension, but you've seen the power that is the result of those things. You too have witnessed it. You too are on the hook. And then, then once he's declared that resurrection and the ascension are these two swords pulled from the stone, that Jesus is the only one who fulfills these things, therefore he is the Messiah, then he ends his sermon with a thunderbolt, a thunderbolt. 
He proclaims the lordship of Christ, but he does it in such a way that I don't think many people who heard it could really cheer. The words that he says in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Uh Uh-oh. That's not the order that you want the knowledge in. We crucified him and then we found out he was the king. He was the one. The guilt is ours. The guilt is ours. The conviction is ours. As you look at Peter's sermon, the different parts of the sermon are introduced by different uh, forms of direct address to the audience, to his listeners. And and interestingly, they seem to move in a degree of intimacy. So when he begins his sermon in verse 14, He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, clears his throat, and then he talks about the prophecy of Joel, starting his explanation of what's going on. But in verse 22, he says, men of Israel, men of Israel, kind of invoking that covenant heritage, not just people of Judea, but now of Israel, inheritors of the covenant promises. And then in verse 29, brothers, brothers even closer. But in the final proclamation, there is a kind of distance in this declaration. Let all the house of Israel know. A formal declaration, a proclamation of the kingship, the lordship of Christ is being made here. Because of the case he's made, you've seen the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. You've seen and heard declared the the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. You've seen from the words of David that the Messiah is the one who will be raised again. The Messiah is the one who will ascend to the right hand of the Father. Because of all of that, therefore, I declare Jesus to be Lord. I declare him to be the Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, this Jesus whom you crucified. Next time we'll look at their reaction to this sermon, but as you think about those final words of Peter's, they're meant to to be a kind of hook. They're meant to be a challenge. This isn't a declaration that you can stand by and, and appreciate from the sidelines. The declaration that Christ is Lord that Christ is Messiah, speaks to all of us and draws from us a visceral reaction. In Matthew 10, 34, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And the sword he's talking about is the sword of division that divides loved ones, that divides families. And the line of division is in how they respond to the claims of Christ. When he is proclaimed Lord and Christ, the way we respond can be very different. Some of us respond with rejoicing, with relief, and some of us fight and fight hard and rebel. The signs of resurrection and ascension, make the kingship of Jesus clear. But the sign still leaves us with the question of our own guilt to deal with. And how we deal with that guilt 
is important. Do we own it or do we deny it? Do we pretend that it doesn't exist? In talking about swords drawn from stones, well, there's one famous interpretation of this scene in John Borman's film Excalibur, which is kind of awful and wonderful at the same time. It's the one where all of the knights of the round table wear what almost look like football pads made out of shiny armor. The soundtrack is from Wagner. It's what made that chanty Carmina Burana thing so popular. But there's a, a moment when the sword is drawn from the stone, and it doesn't go the way you would expect. The whole kingdom is gathered together around the stone. There's this pretty sword sticking in it, and all of these knights in shining armor have tried to pull it out, and none of them can. And then this boy comes along, and he pulls it out, and he does it effortlessly. One guy struggles and strains and can't budge it, but when Arthur puts his hand on the sword, he just whips it out like this. There's no friction at all. And, and everyone bows down and says, you are the king, and we will now serve you. Not at all. Not at all. When, when the sign is performed, and there's now no ambiguity, we all now know who the true king is because the sign attests to him, what you get is rebellion. All of the people who have failed to draw that sword out of the stone now unite against this boy king and seek to rebel against him and to topple him. All of these knights on horseback organized right on the spot a rebellion against the king who's just shown them that he is the rightful heir, all but one. There is one knight in shining armor who is uh, played by that wonderful Shakespearean actor Patrick Stewart, who later was Jean-Luc Picard in Star Trek, and uh, strangely, like 20 years earlier, looked exactly the same as, as he did then. His character has this wonderful Arthurian name, Leodegrance, and uh, he's surrounded by all of these knights who are saying, we can't let this boy be a king. Join us and we will fight against him. And then this great booming voice of his, outnumbered as he is, he reaches for his own sword and he draws it and he says, I saw what I saw. If a boy is chosen to be king, then a boy shall be king. And that one man stands against all of the rebels and fights against them until eventually all of their knees bow to the true king. And I go back to that scene sometimes when I recognize that, that Christ has given us so many signs. And the reason you want signs is to eliminate uncertainty. The reason we want Jesus to do something that makes it clear is that we want everybody to see it the same way. We want to be united in bending our knee to him. We don't want to be divided. We don't want to be torn away from our loved ones. We don't want the conflict. We want a sign that draws us all together in agreement that this is the true king and we will all follow him. But the sign doesn't unite. The sign divides. The sign divides because our hearts are divided. We fight, but we submit. And it all has to do with those words, I saw what I saw. Whatever it means, whatever it obligates me to, whatever burden I have to pick up, I saw what I saw. I witnessed what I witnessed. The disciples at Pentecost served Christ not because he was the best option out there, not because he had led them to so many good things, and thanks to his promises, they were wealthy and fulfilled and happy. They followed him because they'd seen what they'd seen. 
They'd witnessed what they'd witnessed, and if this is the way that God was fulfilling the promise, then this was the way, and they had to follow him. David prophesied that the Messiah would be resurrected. Jesus was resurrected. David prophesied that the Messiah would ascend to the Father, and Jesus did. And Peter stands before those people and says, we are witnesses. We saw what we saw. We can do no other. We saw him raised. We saw him ascended. And then he adds, you are witnesses too, because you've seen the power. No minister proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ could control how you answer it and control whether you will own your guilt or deny it, whether you will submit to him or fight him. But we've seen what we've seen. We've witnessed what we've witnessed. And what we've seen, what we've witnessed is this, that the living king, Jesus Christ, sits on the throne. The throne of David is not empty. It is filled by the one who has inherited the power that was promised. And this kingdom changes everything. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.